Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. Aldous Huxley, Complete Essays, Volume 2, 1926 to 1929. This podcast contains things that you may not know or fully understand, but that pose real and present threats to your well-being and to your life. The word ignorance in the title is not used pejoratively, but it is intended to be taken literally. In each of these podcasts, I intend to share with you what I have learned about the issue at hand. I've relied on sources that I believe to be trustworthy and unbiased, and whose conclusions are based upon empiric data and sound scientific reasoning. Each of my sources is given attribution in the notes accompanying this recording. Any opinions expressed here are mine, unless otherwise attributed. I bring these issues to your attention in the hope that they will raise your awareness, motivate you to investigate further, and spark conversation among your peers. Death by ignorance does not contain profanity. It does, however, present content that may be disturbing to some listeners. The material is intended for a mature audience and may be inappropriate for younger listeners. Death by Ignorance, Episode 4, A Return to the Pre-Antibiotic Dark Ages. Over the years, I've borne witness to far too many tragedies resulting from runaway infections by antibiotic-resistant organisms. I've seen healthy men, women, and children die from once-treatable infections. I've amputated the leg of an athlete who started out his day with a splinter in the foot and went on to develop gangrene from a bacterial infection unresponsive to antibiotics. These shocking scenarios are becoming more common every day in America. I'm long overdue for a visit back to Scotland, home for most of my surviving family and the resting place of my dear departed parents. As boys, my brothers and I spent many an idyllic summer in rented farmhouses in the southern borders or on the west coast of the country, in the Ayrshire countryside, between Girvan to the south and Kilmarnock to the north. I don't get back over to Scotland nearly as often as I'd like, as often as I should even, but have recently been feeling the tug of her irresistible charm. So when I stumbled across an advert the other day for a self-catering rental farmhouse just east of Kilmarnock, my interest was piqued. There was something very familiar about the name of the house, Lockfield Farm, and the nearby village of Darvel. It came to me later that day, Lockfield Farm, this very house, was the birthplace of one very interesting man a man whose work would save the lives of countless millions and usher medical science into the modern era. His name? Alexander Fleming. Born to hard-working farmers Hugh and Grace Fleming in 1881, Alexander was one of eight children in the Fleming household. He was a bright lad and intent on following in the footsteps of his older brother, Tom, who was a medical student at St. Mary's Hospital in London. He excelled as a student, earned scholarships to attend the Kilmarnock Academy, and moved south to join his brother in London at the ripe old age of 13. After completing his basic education in London, he joined the Territorial Army at 19, and the following year gained admittance to the prestigious St. Mary's Hospital Medical School at the University of London. His early plan had been to pursue a career in surgery, but a temporary posting in the inoculation department at St. Mary's captured his interest in the new and exciting field of bacteriology, and changed the course of his studies entirely. 
He learned to conduct scientific research under the watchful eye of his mentor, bacteriologist and immunologist, Sir Armroth Edward Wright. Wright was, at the time, doing groundbreaking work on the new and revolutionary concept of vaccination. During World War I, Fleming served as a bacteriologist with the Royal Army Medical Corps in France. He conducted important work in the area of wound infection and was among the first in his field to recognize that the strong disinfectants and antiseptics that were routinely being applied to wounds on the battlefield were leading to more deaths than were the infections that these compounds were intended to treat. His work was largely ignored. Returning to London after the war in 1918, he took the post of assistant director of the St. Mary's Inoculation Department, going on to become a professor of bacteriology at the University of London in 1928 and an emeritus professor of the same department in 1948. His first major discovery was that of lysozyme, an enzyme that's found in human sputum and saliva. He discovered that it had antiseptic properties. The discovery was the result of a combination of serendipity and keen observation. A drop of mucus dripped from Fleming's nose. He had a bad cold at the time and landed in a bacterial culture that he was working with. Several days later, the bacterial culture stopped growing and died shortly thereafter. Further work isolated the enzyme, and his discovery was recognized as a significant contribution to the understanding of the human immune system. But this was only a prelude to his magnum opus. In 1928, Fleming returned to his lab after a month-long holiday. Whatever became of month-long holidays, I wonder. Anyway, returning from his holiday, he discovered that a mold had contaminated one of his experimental cultures of Staphylococcus aureus. He noticed that there was now a clear zone around the growing mold where the colonies of Staphylococcus appeared to have been killed. The name of the mold was Penicillium notatum, Fleming initially named the bacteria-killing material that was produced by the mold, mold juice. A catchy name, no doubt, but he was soon pressured by his peers into renaming it penicillin, which he did after the mold that produced it. Fleming and his fellow researchers were unable to isolate and purify the new chemical, but this work was successfully completed a short time later at the University of Oxford by a team of scientists led by Ernst Chain and Howard Florey. The battlefields of World War II revealed the revolutionary power of the new antibiotic therapy and thrust Fleming, Chain and Florey into the world limelight. In 1945, all three scientists shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Fleming went on to earn more honorary memberships and doctoral degrees that I can list here, and he died of a heart attack at his home in London in the spring of 1955. Since Fleming's day, we have produced many classes of naturally occurring and synthetic antibiotics with activity against countless different pathogenic bacteria. There is little else that can claim to have had a more transformative impact on the way medicine is practiced today. But we're entering a new and frightening era in healthcare, an era marked by the emergence of antibiotic resistance and the return of diseases that were once vanquished by these miracle drugs. Why are our antibiotics becoming dangerously ineffective? How will these accelerating changes impact our lives and the lives of our children and grandchildren? What should we be doing about it? And why aren't we? But how about a few basic definitions before we get started? It always helps to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. A lot of human ignorance starts with a basic misunderstanding of terms and ideas. It's hard to make much sense 
of a cake recipe if we think a cake is a kind of lighthouse. Bacteria. That's the plural of bacterium. Bacteria are tiny creatures. They consist of a single cell. By way of contrast, your body is made up of something around 30 trillion cells. Bacteria contain a nucleus. That's the part of the cell where the genetic material, DNA, is found. They can be found almost everywhere on the planet, including inside volcanoes, icebergs, nuclear waste, and uh, the toughest ones of all are found in our colons. They get energy from the sun and from plants and the animals that they live on or in. Most of them are capable of moving around. Some bacteria need oxygen to live. Some die when they're in oxygen. They reproduce by splitting into two or more parts, each with its own copy of the DNA from the nucleus. A bacterium is not a virus, and this is important. Staphylococcus aureus is a common species of bacteria. A virus, a virus is way smaller and a lot less complicated than a bacterium. Most scientists do not consider viruses to be alive. They're basically a strand or two of genetic material, either DNA or RNA, that's wrapped in a coating of fatty material and sometimes with an outer shell of protein. Viruses live inside the cells of a plant or animal and use the host's own cells to make more of themselves. Viruses cause infectious diseases and pass from an infected host to an uninfected one. Variola major is a virus. It's the one that causes the deadly disease smallpox. Infection. An infection is the disease or condition that results when a bacterium or virus and a few other kinds of microscopic critters take up residence on or in a suitable host. Pneumonia is one example of an infection of the lung that comes in many distinct types caused by bacteria, viruses and other pathogens. Pathogen. Any microorganism, including viruses, uh, a bacterium or a protozoan like amoeba, that is capable of causing disease in the host. Vibrio is a pathogenic bacterium that causes food poisoning from eating uncooked seafood that's infected with the germ. Antibiotic. Antibiotics are a class of substances, both naturally occurring and entirely synthetic. They're capable of preventing the growth of or causing the death of bacteria and protozoans. They're used as medicines to treat bacterial infections. Antibiotics have no effect on viruses and are completely ineffective in the treatment of viral illnesses. This is really important to what we're going to be talking about. I'll repeat it. Antibiotics have no effect on viruses. They are completely ineffective for the treatment of viral illness. Penicillin, tetracycline, and vancomycin are all examples of antibiotics. Antibiotic resistance. Antibiotic resistance is an example of natural selection and refers to the mechanism by which bacteria inherit resistance to certain antibiotics. A formerly sensitive bacterium can become resistant to an antibiotic by following one of two paths. The first is when a chance mutation, one that renders a bacterium insensitive to the antibiotic, confers a survival advantage, meaning that the bacteria with the gene survive and therefore pass this resistance down to their progeny. Or... The second way, when a resistant bacterium passes the gene for resistance to another bacteria, it can even be to another species of bacteria in the form of a fragment of genetic material known as a plasmid.
The bugs without the gene or the plasmid are promptly destroyed by the antibiotic, and soon only those bacteria with the gene for resistance remain to grow and multiply unimpeded. Following the changes that occur to the bacteria, they are no longer susceptible to that antibiotic and oftentimes to similar antibiotics. Infections with that antibiotic-resistant bacteria are difficult and sometimes can be impossible to treat. MRSA, commonly known as MRSA, is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It's a strain of staph, as it is affectionately known, that can no longer be killed by the antibiotic methicillin. Crisis. According to Webster, a time of intense trouble, difficulty, or danger. We are currently in the grip of an antibiotic resistance crisis. And this crisis poses a clear and present danger to every man, woman, and child on the planet. Antibiotic resistance in bacteria is not a new problem. It actually emerged almost immediately after the discovery of penicillin by Fleming in 1928. The antibiotic tetracycline was discovered in 1950. By 1959, we saw the emergence of tetracycline-resistant Shigella, a bacteria that causes potentially deadly diarrheal disease. It took only two years from the discovery of methicillin until infections by methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus started showing up in hospitals. A potentially deadly new type of pneumonia caused by levofloxacin-resistant pneumococcus started killing infected patients later in the same year that levofloxacin was released in 1996. No, antibiotic-resistant bacteria have been around a good long while. In fact, there is some level of resistance that has been discovered in bacteria exposed to every clinically effective antibiotic that has ever been discovered. Let that sink in. Every single one. Another point of confusion and misunderstanding is this. Antibiotic resistance has nothing to do with the infected human, or for that matter, the antibiotic. It's only the bacteria that becomes resistant. What that means is, we humans are all in the same boat. We're all at risk for infection from these superbugs. It doesn't make any difference if you have or haven't ever taken a particular antibiotic because it's not you that has the resistance. It's the bug. There's nowhere on the planet that we're safe from these antibiotic-resistant bacteria. With long incubation periods, asymptomatic carriers, and modern air travel, resistant bacteria are able to find their way to every corner of the globe. So we're all at risk. The primary concern is the fact that infections caused by many of these new resistant bacteria can maim or kill you because there are no antibiotics that work against them. But there are other problems too. Infections with these bacteria that don't kill us are still very hard to treat. These infections can lead to very long, very expensive, very uncomfortable hospital stays. They can turn routine surgical procedures into extremely dangerous undertakings that may cost you your life. Minor skin injuries can explode into runaway gangrenous infections, often leading to amputations or even death. Even childbirth can become the life-threatening horror that it was in the Dark Ages, both to mother and baby. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria formerly found mostly in our hospitals are now showing up out in the community as well. Already strapped public health resources are facing severe economic challenges due to the dramatically more expensive treatment necessary for infections caused by the resistant bacteria. Treatment with second and third line antibiotics can triple the cost of treating an infection. Add to this the shocking fact that drug companies lacking large enough financial incentives have stopped developing new antibacterial drugs. They aren't developing 
new antibiotics. Understand that and you can begin to understand how big a problem this is. Day after day, we go about our lives swimming in an invisible cesspool of resistant bacteria with fewer and fewer effective antibiotics to treat the inevitable infections. These superbugs are everywhere. They're in our air, in our water. They carpet every surface and they inhabit our food. Poor personal hygiene with lax hand washing guarantees that these pathogens are shared generously with our friends, classmates, fellow inmates, medical staff, platoon members, even our fellow Walmart shoppers. So how did we get here? What the hell is causing this crazy situation to spin out of control? To understand that, we need to understand another critically important concept. For bacteria to become resistant to a particular antibiotic, they must be either exposed to that antibiotic or come in contact with another bacteria that has been exposed to the antibiotic and has a plasmid to pass on to the first bacteria. Antibiotic resistance is inevitable. It will happen whenever bacteria are exposed to an antibiotic, and that's because there are so many bacteria. Let me explain. Mutations are relatively unusual, but when you're talking about trillions of bacteria, those mutations become, relatively speaking, more common. And it only takes one bacteria with the mutation to divide and start a new line of progeny that is resistant to the bacteria. So the key critical factor is exposure to the antibiotic. That makes this a problem of scale. By that, what I mean is, the more antibiotic molecules that are floating around in the environment, the more bacteria that they will encounter, and the more frequently resistant strains will emerge as a result of those encounters. Let me put it a little differently. To limit the number of resistant bacteria out there, we must first limit the amount of antibiotic that we put into the environment. It's that simple. And when I talk about putting antibiotics into the environment, I don't mean pouring penicillin tablets into a babbling mountain brook, though that will certainly do it. I'm talking about adding antibiotics into the environment when we swallow them or pee them out or throw bloody dressings in the trash after surgery. So let's get specific about the ways we are making this problem worse. But first, let me remove one way that we put antibiotics into our environment from this whole equation. I'm not going to talk about the antibiotics that you take into your body when you're under the care of a doctor and being properly treated for a bacterial infection. That's an appropriate use of antibiotics. It's why they were invented. And there's really little we can do about that. Well, there are some things we can do about our infections. I'll get to that later. But it's important to understand that these antibiotics will lead to some degree of antibiotic resistance. It's going to happen, but we have to accept that as the cost of treating your infection. Now, I'm talking specifically about the antibiotics that we're putting into the environment unnecessarily or excessively. And that means any antibiotic above and beyond what we need to treat actual bacterial infections. With that in mind, there are two principal ways in which excessive amounts of antibiotics get into the environment. The first is through the inappropriate use of antibiotics, and the second is by the excessive use of the drugs. Inappropriate use of antibiotics is a complicated problem. Even though its definition is pretty straightforward, it's the use of antibiotics when there is no valid medical reason for doing so. One of the common ways in which this happens is when a patient goes to see their doctor with a common viral infection. This happens all over the country 
thousands of times a day. Other than the occasional decongestant or cough-suppressing drug or antihistamine for managing symptoms, there's usually no medicine necessary for treating the viral infection itself. They get better on their own, in its own sweet time. That's the way the cold virus works. It burns out and disappears from your system. So unless your doctor discovers that you have an infection that is caused by a strain of bacteria, or you're at special risk for a secondary infection because you're on chemotherapy, for example, there is never a reason to prescribe antibiotics for this cold. Never. Ever. Antibiotics do not kill viruses. Your viral illness won't improve with the use of antibiotics. Then why do so many doctors prescribe them anyway? Well, this is where it gets a little complicated. The most worrying possibility is that the doctor doesn't know what he or she is doing. I rather doubt that this is very often true, uh, but certainly it could be, and there may be a few really, really terrible clinicians out there somewhere. From time to time, a physician may misdiagnose the problem and prescribe antibiotics in the belief that the patient actually has a bacterial infection. But you know, in this day and age, that also should be pretty uncommon. There's another reason that is far more likely. For some reason, a great many people in this country today have come to equate the word prescription with the word treatment. And that is wrong. Not every illness requires a medication as part of the treatment. But the public often doesn't buy it. They know little or nothing about viruses and bacteria, but they're absolutely positively certain that they are not going to get over this flu without a powerful antibiotic. And when confronted by a sniffling Mr. Dunning or a sneezing Mrs. Kruger, look that up, what does the doctor do? She can sit down with the patient and explain all about antibiotics and viruses, a conversation that can tire up for half an hour or more, and that's on a day when her HMO is expecting her to see 75 patients as well. Or she can write a prescription for Bactrim and move on to the next patient. Often, pulling out the prescription pad is the path of least resistance, or in this case, the path of most resistance, I guess. And in one scribbled ineligible signature, another 26 grams of trimethoprim and sulfasoxazole are released into the environment. But I really do get the physician's side of this. She is under enormous pressure to see patients. She simply doesn't have the time to stop for half an hour and educate this patient knowing that there are going to be six or eight or ten more of them. And when she writes that prescription, she's almost certainly thinking, well, just this once I'll make this exception. I won't do it again, I know better. And if she had stopped to explain why she wasn't going to write the prescription, what would happen then? Well, as likely as not, the patient would have stormed out of the office complaining to anyone that would listen about the so-called doctor that wouldn't treat his cold and gone to the nearest doc in the box to get his antibiotics. You think I'm kidding, but that's it. That's the way it goes. And this, I believe, more than any other reason, is why our overworked, underpaid, burnt-out primary care physicians are making the problem of antibiotic resistance worse every day. In some very important ways, this is just as much a cultural problem as it is a medical one. And while I'm on the subject of cultural problems, we are also way overdue for some serious behavior modification. Think about it. Maybe because the population thinks there's a magic bullet for everything that ails us, we've slipped into a lot of bad habits that are resulting in a lot more infections. And one important way to limit the amount of antibiotic that's being dumped into the environment would be to limit the number of real infections that physicians are having to treat. Better personal hygiene, like proper hand washing, safer sex, 
more careful food handling, covering your nose and mouth when you sneeze into the mashed potatoes at Morrison's. All these things help make infections less common and therefore reduce the number of antibiotic prescriptions out there. How else are we dumping tons of antibiotics into the environment? I've been talking a lot about US healthcare here, but to be clear, antibiotic resistance is a global matter, and there are parts of the world in which antibiotics can be purchased freely by anybody with the cash and with no prescription. Regular folks can still buy bucket loads of potent antibiotics to treat the water in their home aquarium but as much of this problem as we may be tempted to place squarely at the feet of doctors and patients and aquarium owners in the third world, there's one group of antibiotic users that make healthcare providers pale by comparison, and they're the factory farmers. The degree to which industrial farming across this country is contributing to the problem of antibiotic resistance is really hard to get your head around. In 2014 alone, more than 10,000 tons of medically important antibiotics were sold to feed manufacturers. We had three times more antibiotics fed to the chickens and the pigs and the cows that are destined for your dinner table than were used on all the people in the country. And that was just in the animal's food. The Factory farming industry, unsurprisingly, has been constructing their own alternate reality in which their antibiotics don't have anything to do with human disease resulting from infection with resistant bacteria. Their claims, of course, are supported by small, poorly designed, uncontrolled studies conducted by the industry itself. The vast majority of the claims that are based on such inside studies have not been experimentally confirmed and the published results can't be replicated by independent laboratories or research teams because they're not given access to most of these mega meat factories. And their claims ring about as true as the similar claims made by big oil, big tobacco and big asbestos over the years. The farms don't permit researchers free access to their facilities, making it virtually impossible to scientifically quantify the true danger. And thanks to the work of a few intrepid investigators, there is some information that we've been able to gather. Our old friend Mercer, MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, is showing up in the majority of pigs and farm workers in every pig farming operation that has been tested in this country. One recent study found the bowel bacterium, Escherichia coli, E. coli, in 80% of raw chicken samples tested. Even more alarming was a 2011 study by the Environmental Working Group, which found 81% of ground turkey samples and 55% of ground beef samples not only contained gut bacteria, but bacteria that were already resistant to antibiotics that are important in the treatment of serious human disease. Antibiotics are regularly added to the feed of healthy animals, both to prevent disease and to cause the animals to grow faster and put on weight quicker while eating less. This actually became illegal in 2017, but apparently continues relatively unchanged in many operations due to the numerous loopholes in the legislation. It's also required by law that antibiotics can't be routinely administered to animals except under the supervision of a veterinarian and unless the animal is sick. This becomes problematic when the veterinarian takes his or her marching orders from the meat producer and the bottom line is that the drugs are still showing up in the meat, supervised or not. There's another important piece of science we need to consider. I'm not going to go into the technical details of precisely how this phenomena occurs, and we've referred to it earlier, but some of the bacteria 
important in human disease like MRSA, are able to pass the genetic material, the gene that confers resistance to a certain group of antibiotics, to other kinds of bacteria, not just to other bacteria of their own species. For example, if a human eats a piece of pork that is contaminated with methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, the bacteria in the pork can pass their bacterial resistance to the normal bacteria that lives in the human colon, essentially turning them into antibiotic-resistant bacteria as well. And this can have devastating consequences for the human. The little piece of genetic material, the part that's passed from one strain of bacteria to another, is called the plasmid. There is quite a lot of scholarly literature that attempts to characterize the role of antibiotic use in modern agriculture, but the information can be difficult to interpret. That's because the subject tends to be treated differently depending on the point of view of the researcher. In other words, vets tend to look into the effects of the antibiotics on the animals, while clinicians pay more attention to the development of human disease Microbiologists focus on the way the resistance is passed around between animal and human vectors or between bacteria and bacteria. And the food researchers concentrate on the impact of resistant bacteria on the food supply. So what is lacking in the published literature is a coherent characterization of the big picture. And without that type of narrative, it's going to be very difficult to answer the question, what effect is the use and misuse of antibiotics in industrial farming having on human illness? We also need to consider the possible positive effects that result from feeding large doses of antibiotics to livestock. We have to look at all of the facts. Maybe this practice can be shown to actually decrease animal disease or increase the yield of affordable meat products or have some other beneficial outcomes we haven't thought about. The problem here is that those studies are far and few between. Of the studies that have been attempted to offer proof of these beneficial effects, few, if any of them, are either large enough or rigorous enough to offer any convincing evidence. The FDA finally started taking the threat of antibiotic resistance seriously in 2017. Prior to that, their main contribution to the problem seemed to be just withholding research funding, no doubt in response to generous lobbying by the agriculture industry. But on the bright side, the FDA did report a 30% decrease in antibiotic sales for use in animal feed that same year. But there is a great deal more that they should be doing. The FDA has yet to publish a specific concrete timeline for how it will meet the objectives outlined in its recently published five-year plan. It also needs to accelerate the implementation timelines that they have published. In other words, they need to dramatically pick up the pace and immediately implement a few changes that are dangerously overdue. Firstly, the FDA needs to make the veterinary industry accountable for oversight of how these agricultural antibiotics are being used and misused. They also need to close all of these loopholes that allow the meat industry to use antibiotics inappropriately, and they must significantly improve and strengthen the existing resistance surveillance programs. And what is being done to get a handle on the problem of antibiotic use in humans? Significant steps have been made to implement stewardship programs in hospital around the country. And this is a good thing. What this means is that hospitals are setting up multidisciplinary committees that are charged with tracking the use and misuse of antibiotics within their systems. They play an important role in re-educating practitioners whose antibiotic prescribing behaviors are either outdated or inappropriate. But again, there is much that still needs to be done. CMS, the organization that administers the Medicare and Medicaid programs, 
needs to require any facilities that receive payments from CMS to have a stewardship program in place. They've supposedly been working on this for the last two years, but it still hasn't been implemented. CMS also needs to require reporting of antibiotic resistance and antibiotic usage statistics through the National Healthcare Safety Network, that is, a network administered by the Centers for Disease Control, so that we can have access to meaningful use data and resistance rates. As challenging as it is to set up stewardship programs within hospitals and health systems, it is much harder to implement programs like that for tracking antibiotic use and misuse patterns in the outpatient setting, places like retail health clinics and doctor's offices, urgent care facilities and the like. And this needs to be aggressively addressed. We need to be able to identify the how, when, where, and why antibiotics are prescribed beyond the walls of the hospital as well as inside them. And we need to set up stewardship programs that work in these outpatient settings. Health plans do some of this now. Uh, but they need to add some meaningful incentives or disincentives to ensure that appropriate prescribing is enforced. A separate but also huge consideration and source for concern is the lack of ongoing research and development by the companies that produce antibiotics. There are several reasons why Big Pharma has essentially stopped developing new antibiotics. And unsurprisingly, they're all pretty much rooted in the drug company's prioritization of profit over service. It is costly and time-consuming to bring innovative new antibiotics to the market. I get that. The regulatory hurdles to getting a new drug approved are draconian and impractical at best. But at the end of the day, drug companies aren't going to do a damn thing unless they're making money from it. One approach could be for Congress to implement incentive payments to antibiotic manufacturers that are tied to the development of new antibiotics. But of course that would require having a Congress that was capable of actually doing anything and I don't see that happening anytime soon. There's another and slightly more nuanced problem that the smaller drug companies, the ones that are really interested in developing whole new classes of antibiotics, are facing. And that is the way that drug companies are rewarded or reimbursed for their research and development. Normally, that is a cost that the drug company would capture from the sale of the drug after it's developed and put on the market and their interests are protected from competition for a number of years uh, so that they're able to make that money back before generic equivalents uh, flood the market. But that isn't going to work when we're trying to develop drugs that we don't want to use. That's the whole point here. We need these new super antibiotics to be held in reserve so the patients that present with diseases caused by bacteria that are resistant to everything will have a solution for their life-threatening problem. And if the business model is to use the innovative new antibiotics as little as possible, there's really no upside for the manufacturers, the smaller companies that are, that are interested in doing this. So we need to find a way to shift the incentive from making and selling as many antibiotics as you can, which is part of the reason we got in this trouble in the first place, and create incentives that are going to reward the innovative companies that are developing and testing these expensive drugs. Another issue related to the development of new antibiotics is the relative lack of information sharing that exists between drug companies. Again, it's mostly a result of greed winning out over the desire to do the right thing. 
But the Pew Charitable Trust has established a program called the Shared Platform for Antibiotic Research and Knowledge. And to their credit, a couple of international drug companies have actually stepped up to the plate. So kudos to Novartis and Acogen for their contributions to this information bank. But we need far more of these companies to get involved. The problem of antibiotic resistance is a massive one. The World Health Organization has placed it in their list of the top 10 threats to global health in 2019. We, all of us, need to join with charitable organizations like Pew, but also with doctors, farmers, researchers in supporting federal programs that are involved in this fight to the death with these emerging superbugs. We need to make sure that the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Agriculture, and any other agencies have the funding needed to collect and track data to improve the way antibiotics are being used and to fund research into new compounds. So what can you, as a regular citizen, do about any of this? It sounds like one of those insurmountable problems that somebody else is going to have to deal with, but that's, that's not true. There's quite a lot we can do. Here are a few suggestions of how you can help to move the needle in the right direction. Number one, learn the facts about the problem of antibiotic resistance. This is a decent start but maintain a little healthy skepticism about facts that are published by people or organizations with something to gain. If a factory farming operation writes an op-ed about the safety of their new antibiotics, ask yourself what they stand to gain by making that statement and trust it accordingly. Look instead to trusted, apolitical, science-based resources, sources with nothing to gain from their conclusions except the trust of the public. They are far less likely to deliberately mislead you with lies or inadvertently misinform you when they fall victim to their own motivated reasoning. 2. Share what you learn with your peers. This is something everybody needs to know about. This is something everybody needs to pay attention to. Make sure your friends do. Take the time to tell your government representative that this is an important issue and one that you expect them to care about and take action on. Remind them that they work for you, not for the agriculture lobby. They tend to lose track of that sometimes. Four, Learn how to handle food properly and practice meticulous personal hygiene. Assume that the meat, poultry, and fish that you're having for dinner contains antibiotic-resistant bacteria. It probably does. And handle and cook it accordingly. 5. Learn which food manufacturers are not feeding antibiotics to their animals and buy your meat from them and from them only. It's more expensive, but it's safer. Six, let your doctor and other healthcare personnel that you come in contact with know that you are concerned about the misuse and overuse of antibiotics. Don't be afraid to question these professionals about the treatment they're recommending. Don't hesitate to ask your doctor or nurse practitioner why they're prescribing an antibiotic, especially if they haven't tested you for a bacterial infection. 7. Don't demand an antibiotic prescription when your doctor explains you don't need one. Just in case is never a reason to take an antibiotic, and it won't do any harm is just plain wrong. 8. Lastly, don't assume that this is someone else's problem to deal with. It's a global problem and every single one of us needs to do our part to defeat it. In talking with you about this, I've tried to keep my emotions out of this, but it's hard to do. 
This is a problem that should never have been allowed to get this far out of control. We've known about the dangers of antibiotic resistance since the 1940s, if not earlier. We've constantly failed to act on that knowledge. We should have been doing a much better job of educating our doctors and raising the awareness of the public. The use of antibiotics in farming should never have started without a thorough scientific evaluation of the risks and benefits of the practice. And we should never have left the fox to watch over the hen house. Yes, the antibiotic resistance problem is a full-blown crisis. It's also a very complex, multifactorial problem that is not going to have an easy or simple solution. But we should also recognize it as a symptom of a broader and more pervasive issue, one that we ignore at our peril, and that is our inability as a society to separate fact from fiction, our willingness to allow partisan politics to determine healthcare policy, and our permissive attitudes to the corrupting influence of wealthy special interests that undermine scientific inquiry in order to line their collective pockets. The superbug threat is one that we do have the resources and expertise to vanquish. It's not a question of our ability to handle the problem. It's a question of our willingness to do so. And that's why we'll never successfully address the problem of antibiotic resistance unless at the same time we do something about our willful ignorance, our magical thinking, our mistrust of scientific principles, and our intellectual laziness. We, as a global community, face a bleak future unless we, as individuals, can learn to separate truth from lies and work to correct our own ignorance and that of our friends and neighbors, wherever and whenever we see it.